Thank you for tuning in to AWP's podcast. The following recording you're about to hear is the 2007 Poetry Extravaganza hosted by the Academy of American Poets at AWP's 2007 conference in Atlanta, Georgia. This event took place on Friday, March 2nd, 2007. This recording features poetry readings from David Bottoms, Cornelius Eady, Marilyn Hacker, and Thomas Lux. Now you'll hear Tree Swenson, Executive Director of the Academy of American Poets, provide introductions. It's also a real pleasure to know that you all have come from all over this country to be here tonight, to be here at AWP. And to know that most of you are poets or people who are engaged in teaching poetry and that you're going to go back to from wherever you came from and be busy expanding the tribe of those who, who know the importance of the art of poetry. That's exactly the work of the Academy of American Poets, is to connect people to powerful poetry. And it's with the help of 9,000 members across the country, and thanks to all of you who are members of the Academy of American Poets, because without that, we could not be doing what we're doing distributing hundreds of thousands of posters to help millions of people celebrate National Poetry Month every year, to be preserving and distributing the voices of poets from the audio archive, to be distributing a journal, and to be serving over a million people every month who come to poets.org looking for poetry, looking for what you all are working on. We're presenting four poets here tonight, in addition to David Bottoms, Cornelius Eady, and Thomas Lux, who were on the roster. We are extremely lucky to have recruited Marilyn Hacker to read tonight, after Bridget Peggyn Kelly let us know last week that she was not able to be here. And then, after arriving here, we found out that Dean Young had been trapped in Iowa by an ice storm. So, I am not going to occupy any time this evening that you could be listening to these poets read uh, in doing introductions. There are uh, biographies in the program book that you all have, and uh, you probably know who they all are anyway. Uh, but the list of awards that I could read for any one of tonight's readers would not be nearly as persuasive as what you'll be hearing from them. I do, however, want to mention the most recent books from each of our readers. David Bottoms, Waltzing Through the End Time from Copper Canyon Press, Cornelius Eady's Brutal Imagination from Putnam, Desesperanto from Marilyn Hacker, published by Norton, and The Cradle Place by Thomas Lux from Houghton Mifflin. Please welcome our readers, and we'll begin alphabetically with David Bottoms. Thanks, everyone. Good job. Excellent job. Excellent job. I just want to, uh, right off the bat, thank Tree Swenson and the Academy uh, for inviting me to uh, read tonight on this uh, program with these super poets. And I'm really grateful uh, for the kindness the Academy has uh, shown to me over the years. And uh, I just want to say that, uh, finally, that I don't think any organization has done more for American poets 
than the Academy, and, and thanks for that. I'm going to start with a uh, Florida poem. Uh, if I can find it in here, here it is. And uh, I went to school in Tallahassee, uh, Florida State <laughs> University, where I uh, got a PhD in bass fishing. And uh, <laughs> that's about right. Uh, I used to love to fish. Years ago, I loved to fish. I would uh, sometimes uh, in Tallahassee fish twice a week. I love those little rivers down there. Uh, and uh, I had a little aluminum boat, a little John boat, you know, with a, a little uh, uh, motor that ran on a rubber band almost. And uh, I liked to cruise up and down those little rivers, uh, pretending I was some sort of outdoors person. My, uh, my favorite river was the Wakulla River. I don't know if you know that. Uh, but it's very beautiful down there. Uh, I don't ever recall catching a fish out of the Wakulla. But it's just gorgeous. It's just all jungle, or as much jungle as you can get in North Florida. And you'll know what I'm talking about if I tell you that way back in the early 1940s, two of those old Johnny Weissmiller Tarzan movies were made there. Yeah, along with a movie called uh, The Creature of the Black Lagoon. It's a good flick, uh, by the way. Uh, Anyway, I was out in my boat uh, one morning. It was just about uh, daybreak, and I think I was by myself. And I came around a bend in the river, and this jungle just opened up suddenly in this big clearing. Um, and um, there was one tree in the middle of this clearing, this jet black tree. It looked like someone had actually taken this gigantic piece of uh, poster board, black poster board, and snipped out the silhouette of an oak tree and just sort of pasted it there. And it gave me an odd feeling. And so I drifted in uh, closer to it. And, uh, and, and I felt stranger still because I could see that it was speckled with little red fruit all over it. And I got even closer, and I felt even weirder because I saw, indeed, these things were not fruit, but they were heads, and they were the heads of vultures. I had uh, come on a buzzard roost, uh, the first one I'd ever seen. Um, and uh, it felt weird. I remembered that years, <laughs> years and years later. You know, I, years and years later, and, and I thought, well, y- you know, my goodness, you got the river and the trees and the buzzards and all that stuff. You can't make a poem out of that. You may as well give up. Uh, and years later, I was reading uh, about vultures and other cultures and how they're actually revered, and it occurred to me that buzzards in our culture have sort of taken a bad rap. And uh, I wrote this poem about that. This is my reevaluation of the American buzzard. It's called Under the Vulture Tree. We have all seen them circling pastures, have looked up from the mouth of a barn, a pine clearing, the fences of our own backyards, and have stood amazed by the one slow wing beat, the endless dihedral drift. But I had never seen so many, so close, hundreds, every limb of the dead oak feathered black. And I cut the engine, let the river grab the John boat and pull it toward the tree. The black leaves shined. The pink fruit blossomed red, ugly as a human heart. Then, as I passed under their dream, I saw for the first time its soft countenance, the raw, fleshy jowls wrinkled and generous, like the faces of the very old who have grown to empathize with everything. 
And I drifted away from them, slow, on the pull of the river, reluctant, looking back at their roost, calling them what I'd never called them, what they are, those dwarfed, transfiguring angels who flocked to the side of the poisoned fox, the mud turtle crushed on the shoulder of the road, who pray over the leaf graves of the anonymous lost with mercy enough to consume us all and give us wings. Well, maybe I went a little far on that angel business. <laughs> my, uh, my most recent book is a little different than most of my, my others. Uh, the poems tend to be a little longer. I'm going to read a very abbreviated version uh, of a poem. It's, uh, it's a poem about a saint, an unusual sort of saint, uh, but a saint nevertheless, I think. His name uh, was Buck Klein. And uh, Buck Klein was the chief of police in Canton, Georgia, when I grew up there in the 1960s. And uh, Buck was an interesting guy. He was about 6'5 or so, must have weighed about 280, 300 pounds. And uh, he had the reputation for being just about as sour and as generally mean as a human being gets. Uh, he made that reputation by uh, riding hard on the young toughs in our town. Now, whether that's true, I don't know. That's just his reputation. Uh, everybody in our high school feared Buck Klein like the devil. Uh, this poem focuses on a night in my life just after I turned 16 years old. And I had a steady girlfriend, 16, and uh, she liked to cook us spaghetti suppers. And her mom uh, liked to encourage this very romantic endeavor uh, by driving down to the county line in our dry county and purchasing for us a bottle of Matus Rosé. <laughs> uh, that was pretty romantic and pretty adult. Well, <clears throat> one Saturday night around midnight or 12.30, I was coming home uh, from uh, one of these spaghetti suppers. And uh, we had two traffic lights in our town. I got stopped at the second one. And uh, I looked over uh, to my right, and I saw Buck Klein sitting in his darkened patrol car. And Buck was keeping an eye on our one burger joint, uh, the Burger Chief, where our local hoods like to ride around with their jacked-up hot rods, you know. And I don't know what it was. I'm sitting there at the red light, and I suddenly feel my foot revving the engine, you know. Rrr, rrr, rrr. And I get the notion that if I pull out under the green light and just turn to the left and put about 50 yards between me and Buck, I can floor it and peel off some good rubber for the guys at the Burger Chief and beat Buck home to my house, which is only three miles away. This is the way drunks think. <laughs> uh, this was uh, <clears throat> really stupid. <clears throat> really stupid. Uh, <laughs> This poem uh, centers on uh, what happened uh, to me uh, when Buck Klein pulled me over uh, about a mile and a half down the road. I, I need to tell you here quickly in about five seconds that I'm not the real David Bottoms, but my dad is. I'm the junior version. And uh, my dad was pretty well known in our hometown, but he was a, in high school a, a phenomenal athlete, star athlete. And then he was something of a war hero uh, also in World War II. He was severely wounded at the Battle of Guadalcanal, naval battle. And uh, like most men of that generation, uh, Buck Klein was also a veteran. 
And I found out that night that these guys have sort of a secret bond and that there are things that affect our lives that, uh, that predate us, things that we uh, used to uh, just attribute to the stars. This is called Homage to Buck Klein. At the edge of town, past Landers, Rexall, drugstore, the road whipped right, then hard downhill over the tracks of the L&N Railroad. And one night in 65, stoned on a glass of Matus Rosé, with spaghetti homemade by my girlfriend's mother, I gunned it for the thrill of the dip and peeled a little rubber coming back to the road. Up ahead, the river, the Etowah, and the buttery glaze the moon spread across the concrete railing of the bridge. Then the traffic light at the corner of the North Canton store where sour Buck Klein sat in his dark patrol car with the gold badge of the Canton police stenciled on his door, waiting for some Romeo, Don Juan, some small-town Lothario to run the light in his father's Impala. <laughs> yes, so much depends on the imagination. Bless you. And what buck mauled those tedious midnights wrangling in the rowdies, the would-be toughs circling the burger chief in their jacked-up street rods. So you'd drive by slowly under the green signal and give buck a nod, and maybe in the dark cab an eye would flare, or not, having come to what he'd come to in middle age, making his poor living out-toughing the tough. Call it perverse. Poe would. That heady surge of folly that clobbered me at the light as my foot revved and lifted and the V8 squalled under the jumping hood. What else to say about that rush in my heart as I caught Buck Klein looking up from his clipboard in the dark car backed into the shallows. Then the light going green and me pulling out, turning left, and the long slope of highway past the burger chief stretching out like a drag strip under the stars. Perverse, truly, three miles from home and a quarter mile lead and I floored it, barking off some firestone for the Burger Chief crowd, 45, 55, and Buck growing smaller in my rear view, 80, no sweat and who knows what at the top of the hill, nothing on me but darkness and the curve past the rock barn, the straightaway sloping toward the South Canton Bridge, nothing but darkness, my headlights butchered. Then, tiny in my mirror, those blue lights throbbing. Well, had the stars ever been so frazzled and on fire there on the shoulder of Highway 5 with our headlights killed and the towered lights of the Pony League ballpark long gone black? Crickets and a rush of wind and under the bridge the river rounding big flat rocks. Then the flashlight in my face and the growl behind it shut up. He'd ask the questions, and did, glaring over the beam of his light at the license I'd had for a month. <laughs> you been drinking, boy? Didn't see me back there? No, sir. No, sir. And over the trees beyond the river, the stars flared and calmed and flared again as he glanced from the license to my face and back, breathing my name twice, or my father's. Reckon your daddy'd like to get you out of jail? No, sir. No, sir, to everything. And the dizzy stars flaring again over the hazy trees, the river jeering where the big flat rocks jutted under the shadowy bridge. 
something divine in memory. Once in a theater line in Marietta, Georgia, an old guy from my hometown shaved off some conversation. Something about his eyes I've remembered, pale but sharp, the street light under the bleached stars catching them in that gleam of deep reverie, like the eyes of a scientist or a saint when the clouds finally open. You're old man, he said. You should have seen him play football, meaning Canton High School, 1941, the fall before the war. Everything was in that man's eyes, and that word he edged toward, the way he uttered it with such reverence over the church bells, as if he'd tasted its weight on his tongue for years, careful for the perfect usage, that true word that said it all about my old man, tough. And he stayed tough enough, even after the war, when the shrapnel gnawed into the small of his back with every step he took up or down the service ramp at Holcomb Chevrolet, every step he took across the concrete garage on that splinter of a bone the Japanese Navy left in his leg, that memory always alive and violent, though never spoken, having in its pain too much of the divine, the unapproachable. Tough also one night at Little League, when a drunk behind the backstop kept deviling the umpire. Big man in overalls, a mill worker, hard, poor, angry, all the desperate adjectives, and the words frothing out, merciless and ugly, and the man's own son at the plate, trying to see the baseball through that rain of curses, until the umpire threw off his mask and charged around the backstop. The man, though, the mouth, the drunk, had picked up a shovel and caught him with a blade square in the face. And my father, out of the dugout, fallen suddenly on him, the mouth, the drunk, arms around him in a wrenching hug, not out of anger, but something else. And them on the ground, the one man weeping, and my father talking, not shouting, but talking quietly and hugging the whipped man harder and harder as though he'd known all along a secret the man thought no one knew. Well, like the generations of leaves, Homer says, the lives of mortal men, or something close, and that night whole generations trembled under the nervous stars as Buck Klein, like a slightly stunted Ajax, leaned down and speared me in the eyeball with the beam of his flashlight. You think you can whip my ass? I shook my head. <laughs> he held out my license like a gift. You think you can whip your daddy's ass? <clears throat> I shook my head again, looking up where his pocked and shouted face blocked the glare of the moon. Maybe in the long haul, as a friend says, most everything blows off steadily to the shoulder of the road and wallows like litter in the dark we leave behind. Things that have disheartened, haunted, obsessed, delighted, until finally there's nothing to distract us from that last curve opening onto the home stretch. I agree, to the shoulder of the road, but always waiting to fly out of those gullies on these sudden and unaccountable gusts of memory. And so much 
hangs on memory, the way it toughens us up for that tumble and drift of eternity, for the unpatrolled landscape of the psyche unfurling, and so much certainly on those unknown connections far back we used to credit to the stars. But, Klein, how many charming stars in your crown? One certainly for the night you spared me for my father on the gravel shoulder of Georgia 5 with the bloody moon's own halo glowing around your head. Saint Buck, I kept saying all the way home and lit in an uncluttered niche of my memory a little shrine. Saint Buck of the handy blackjack. Saint Buck of the billy, of the speed trap, of the dark patrol car lurking in the shadows. Troubled patron of would-be toughs, of war heroes and weeping boys. Street cop, surely, of the city to come. One more quick poem. I had just one more quick poem. This is a brand new poem. Uh, I have to read a poem about my daughter. Just a quick one. Uh, and I'll hang it up. Um, she's 15 now. What a delight. Uh, a few years ago, a friend of ours uh, opened a karate studio uh, in Atlanta. And uh, Rachel was uh, 10 or 11 then, and she decided she wanted to take karate lessons. Okay. Uh, she was tired of ballet. Okay, karate lessons. And uh, we talked it over, and we said, sure, what can it hurt? So signed her up. Uh, it turned out, though, uh, she was in a class of uh, 15 or 16 boys. She was the only girl, 15 or 16 boys, uh, all her age or a, a little older. Um, but since she was very agile, and uh, very agile, uh, she quickly became one of the best students in the class. And the boys hated that. They couldn't stand that. Uh, at first, they sort of tried to hide it. But as she got better and better, earned three or four belts, uh, they started to give her something of a hard time. Uh, this poem is about the way she handled that. It's called, uh, My Daughter Works the Heavy Bag. Uh, oh, one of the, uh, one of the routines they, they always did is uh, each kid, uh, every session, got something like uh, five minutes of individual instruction with, with the karate instructor at the heavy bag, you know. Uh, my daughter works the heavy bag. A bow to the instructor, then fighting stance, and the only girl in karate class faces the heavy bag. Small for fifth grade, willow-like, says her mother, sweaty hair tangled like blown willow branches. The boys try to ignore her. They fidget against the wall, smirk, practice their routine of huff and faint. Circle, barks the instructor. Jab, circle, kick, and the black bag wobbles on its chain. Again and again, the bony jewels of her fist jab out in glistening precision. Her flawless legs remember arabesque and glissade. Kick, jab, kick, and the bag coughs rhythmically from its gut. The boys fidget, wait. Then a whisper somewhere, a laugh, a jeer. She circles a bag, jab, 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 flushed, jaw set, huffing with her punches, huffing with her kicks, circles to her left and glares, but only at the bag, alone, in herself, 
to her own time, in her own rhythm, honing her blocks and feints, her solitary dance, having mastered already the first move of self-defense. Thank you. Thank you much. Now you will hear Cornelius Eadie read from his poetry. Oh, that was a wonderful, wonderful ring. Thank you, David. Um, well, um, it is wonderful to be here um, as part of the reading for Academy of American Poets and also to be on this uh, stage with such wonderful poets. Um, and um, the, the idea of, um, I want to briefly just talk about the idea of support uh, that the Academy gives. You, you, when you see me, you're looking at living proof of the support of poets. Um, the, the, the Academy, of course, being the, the place where I got my, my first prize was, was the Lamar Prize, which helped me keep my head above water for, for most of my career. <laughs> so um, you ever wonder about, you know, do, do these things actually matter or count? They actually absolutely do. They absolutely do. Um, um, so I'm going to start with some pieces from a memoir that I've been working on. Um, some people have heard these pieces before, so I apologize. But, um, but I also, also, since we were uh, in, in the van um, off to dinner before we came here for the event, um, I, I suddenly overheard someone talking about whether Florida was actually in the South or not, whether it was really, a, really the South, you know, <laughs> right? And, and I was brought by that, that old kind of, you know, debate that I had. I, I, I knew when I was living in Lynchburg, right? Lynchburg, Virginia, well, the, you know, everyone knew where the South was, right? It's wherever you were. That's where the South is, right? <laughs> right? Right? This is the South. We all know this is the South. Atlanta is definitely the South. I mean, there's no 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 question about that. But uh, but Virginia, I don't know. Some places in Virginia, you don't know, no. And everyone seems, and everyone in Virginia knew, for so certain, that Florida was not the South. You know, absolutely knew that. Right? You go to anybody in Virginia and Lynchburg, you said, yeah, I'll think of retirees go down there. the South. But but I'm a Yankee, absolutely, absolutely a Yankee, but um, I come from Southern culture. And what I mean by that is that my family comes from, well now they would say they came from the South, right? They, they come from, from Florida, both sides of my family. Um, my mother's side of the family comes from Gainesville, uh, the area around Gainesville, uh, Florida, and my father's side of the family comes from, from Tampa. And you know they definitely consider themselves Southerners, right? So, um, you know, w when they moved up north uh, during the, the Great Black um, Migration to to the East and North, you know, to find jobs and housing, um, they of course, like all immigrants, you know, gathered up their their culture and put it on their backs and took it up with them. So, so when I grew up um, in Rochester, New York, um, actually was growing up in the South, uh, Florida. Years later, as an unwed mother, partly to escape her daughter Marie, my big sister Gloria will move down to my mother's hometown of Gainesville, Florida. And when she does, no one will make sport of her because she grew up in the North. In fact, she will fit in and stay for years. The reason for this is while my parents' house might sit in upstate New York, the truth of the matter is that we were raised in Florida. The smells rising from the skillets, Florida. The car parts on the lawn, Florida. 
the switch across the legs, Florida. The fact was that we resided in the deep black south even when we were walking around in a blizzard or sitting at a lunch counter without giving it a second thought. The dry barbecue pit in the, in the backyard, Florida. The black cats and the ghosts, Florida. The sunflowers in the front yard and the collard greens in the back, Florida. And in the house next door, maybe Georgia. <laughs> maybe the Carolinas. And in the house at the middle of the block, maybe Alabama, maybe Texas. That boyfriend who keeps his conked hair in a net, maybe that's Memphis. Maybe that's Louisiana. The pig knuckles and the The woman. Daddy and I are in his Buick, stopped at a red light when a young, shapely woman crosses our path. I'm 11 or 12 years old, maybe older, and I'm beginning to form secret opinions. These are the days when we don't really get along, but I keep my mouth shut as he tries to tell me things. I don't like him, but I want something. If I am in the car, it must be to protect my sisters and my shopping interests. Except for a few personal items which he leaves to my mother, my father is the one who does all the grocery shopping in our house. He is the only dad we've ever heard of that does this. It is his way of controlling the purse strings, plus, I think, it is, it is an excuse for him to get out of the house on weekends. Too bad for us, he tends to think of groceries as fuel. These are the days we're living partly off government surplus, powdered milk, and powdered shame. But we're kids. Our tongues and stomachs must know what any foot soldier knows. We crave sweets, seasoning, and the occasional brand name. But we're living with a man who sleeps on the couch and thinks rich crackers are cookies. <laughs> we have learned it's far better just to be in the store and grab and then try to explain. We are in the car together. I am surrounded by the smell of grease on rags and the metal toolbox he keeps in the back seat. And though I love the Buick, I don't like him. I am the drunk at the rescue mission. He is the sermon you have to endure before you get to chow down. <laughs> I am suffering in silence as he rattles on. These are my impatient days with him. The stuff I'm interested in. Atomic submarines, flying squirrels, the way a finger skims the surface of a horse chestnut, he cares nothing about. The woman crosses our path, <clears throat> says my daddy. His eyes are radar on her hips. Look at that heifer. <laughs> then the light changes, and off we sail with my father's unheard blessing sniffing at the heels of the woman's big legs. There's a sensation of stillness in the cab as the rest of the world glides by. I smell the pennies stuck to the bottom of the open glove compartment. For the moment, he thinks we're pals. We're not pals. I'm restless. He thinks we're friends. We're not friends. Okay, I'll do one, two more of these. And close with a few poems. Double team. What has this young boy done? He has pissed off my big sister Gloria, and in pissing her off, he has pissed me off as well. That's the way things were between me and her back then. I am returning to school for lunch. I am seven or eight years old. They are fighting on Plymouth Avenue next to a gray bulk of an abandoned apartment house. She looks at me as I walk over, drawn by the shouts and ring of bobbing heads, and I know as, that she wants, as my duty as her brother, to double-team the guy. My sister, the firstborn, the, is the one in our house with the temper. 
the person who will fight back even when she knows the odds don't favor her. She is 11 or 12 years old. She wants her way. Lipstick has started to appear. She seems to understand in a way that I still don't. There is nothing to be gained by trying to be nice. There are a lot of fools standing in the way between who she is and who she wants to be. She tussles with our friends, she argues with our parents, and the only thing they have in their favor is her lighter weight, her shorter reach. I'm in awe of this girl who takes a lot but will not take it. I will do anything for my sister and she for me. This boy who is known as a joker and a teaser has pissed her off. Did he call her fat? Did he call her stupid? The edge of the blade my parents used to swat her down. Did he call her crazy to remind her and the street that my younger brother Roosevelt still can't form words and spends his days rocking in a chair? Does it matter? I'm her brother. I peel off a piece of board from the building as she kicks and punches him, punches him, and I wheeled in from behind with the gray, pink blistered, rain rotted club. Then we both go to work. I feel the shock rise from his ribs to my arms, and in my wild, terrified bliss, I give a half laugh, half squeal. His luck and ours is that my arms are too skinny to land a decent blow. We chase him against the wall, and there he hangs, well on his way to getting whooped, crowd mocking, his arms wrapped around his head and neck, bloated by our love. I'm going to go on to reading a few more poems, um, and I'm going to read one poem, which is actually about my mother. It's a true story. Well, <laughs> truth is one of those slippery things. Um, my mother, uh, I, one day I asked my mother, um, out of curiosity, um, how did you and daddy meet? And the, and the poem I'm about to read you is the poem that she told me. Um, and, you know, when you're writing poetry, sometimes you feel like the poetry guards are in your favor. Sometimes a poem will occur and slap you in the face and simply say, this is it, sit down and write it, right? This is the story she gave me, and I said, oh, thank you, poetry gods. Great and small, this is a wonderful gift. And I wrote it, and then the book was published, and I asked my mother again, and she told me a totally different story. <laughs> now, it wasn't like that. We met at a funeral, she told me. But this is the story I'm stuck with. I'm a fool to love you. Some folks would tell you the blues is a woman, some type of supernatural creature. My mother would tell you, if she could, about her life with my father, a strange and sometimes cruel gentleman. She would tell you about the choices a young black woman faces. Is falling in with some man a deal with the devil in blue terms, the tongue we use when we don't want nuance to get in the way, when we need to talk straight. My mother chooses my father after choosing a man who was, as we sing it, of no account. This man made my father look good. That's how bad it was. He made my father seem like an island in the middle of a stormy sea. He made my father look like a rock. And is the blues the moment you shrug your shoulders and agree? 
A girl without money is nothing dust to be pushed about by any old breeze. Compared to this, my father seems briefly to be a fire escape. This is the way the blues works its sorry wonders. Makes trouble look like a feather bed. Makes the wrong man's kisses a healing. I'm going to read just um, one more poem. This is the book that won the Lamar Prize. This is the title poem. And the idea of the poem was that it was if, as if there was a virus that came to town. And when it came to town, it would affect the person in the sense that it would force them to reveal the, the self that they keep hidden from the rest of the world. Victims of the Leia's dance craze. The streamers choking the main arteries of downtown. The brass band led by a child from the home for the handicap. The old men showing their hair, what's left of it. The buttons of their shirts popping in time to the salsa flooding out of their portable headphones. And the mothers letting their babies be held by strangers. And the bus drivers taping over their fare boxes and willing to give directions. Is there any reason to mention all the drinks are on the house? Thick adolescent boys dismantle their baby guns. Here is the world, what's left of it in brilliant motion. The oil slick at the curb danced into a thousand splintered steps. The bag ladies toss off their garments to reveal wings. This dance you do draws the cop. What do you call it? We call it scalding the air. We call it dying with your shoes on. And across the street, the bodies of tramps stumble in a sober language. And across the street, shy young girls step behind their nameless boyfriends, twirling their skirts. And under an archway, a delivery boy discovers his body has learned to speak. And what does this street look like if not a runway, a polished wood floor? From the air, insects drawn by the sweat, a light when possible, on the blur of torsos. It is the ride of their tiny lives. The wind that burns their wings, the heaving, oblivious flesh, mountains stuffed with panic, an ocean that can't make up its mind. They drop away with the scorched taste of vertigo. And under a swinging light bulb, some children invent a game with the shadow the bulb makes and the beat of their hearts. They call it dust in the mouth, they call it horse with no rider, they call it school with empty books. In the next room, their mother throws her dress away to chance. It drops to the floor like a brush, sighs across a drumhead. And when she takes her lover, what are they thinking of if not a ballroom filled 
with mirrors, a world where no one has the right to stumble. In a parking lot, an old man says this, I am a ghost dance. I remember the way my hair felt damp with sweat and wind. When the wind kisses the leaves, I am dancing. When the subway hits the third rail, I am dancing. When the barrel goes over Niagara Falls, I am dancing. Oh, music rings my bones like metal. Oh, jazz has come from heaven, he says. And at the Z, he jumps, arcing his back like a heron's neck and stands suddenly revealed as a balanced demon, a home for Stetson hats. We have all caught the itch. The neon artist wiring up his legs, the tourist couple recording the twist on their instamatic camera. And in a factory, a janitor asks his broom for a waltz, and he grasps it like a woman. He'd have to live another life to meet. And he spins around the dustbin and machines and thinks, is everybody happy? And he spins out the side door, avoiding the cracks in the sidewalk, grinning as if he'd just received the deepest kiss in the world. Thank you. You have reached the end of part one of the 2007 Poetry Extravaganza hosted by the Academy of American Poets. Please listen to part two of this recording to hear readings from Marilyn Hacker and Thomas Lux.